0: Welcome back to Unchanging Education. I'm continuing to talk about Philip Reef. I've kind of been pronouncing it as rife simply because I've seen it written so much more than I've ever heard it discussed. This is something that we also see with Paulo Freire or Freire. Um sometimes things can be pronounced differently. So anyway, I hope you'll forgive me. I may still accidentally say rife, not reef. So, quickly recapping TVSC, that in teacher-centered education, at the pedagogical level, there's a sense of inheritance, but also the possibility of failure. Whereas in student-centeredness, this inheritance doesn't really exist, that Instead, there's a sense of an encumbrance from the past, or from what is or what exists, and also the absence of the possibility of failure, at least for the student. So one of the great lines from Philip Reef that I've um, mentioned a number of times is the importance of history, that to leave the great past unremembered is to be adrift in the howling present. And this great past is really what is meant by inheritance, or, uh, for SC, in thinking of it as this, there is no great past, there's just this encumbrance. So education is the transmission of inherited culture, and also the imposition of civility. And in thinking of uh, Hannah Arendt's phrasing, it is our best and only solution to the problem of the existence of the young so while success can be measured by many different metrics there is in a sense only one failure and it's important to have the freedom to fail or this um, the freedom to fail or the, the possibility Of failure as an outcome or as a result is something important and something that may be lacking and I've spoken about this tendency in education to think about techniques that preclude failure even as a possibility except in some cases only for the failure of the teacher it's possible for teachers to fail but not for students So one example of this is differentiation, which refers to teaching a large group of students all with different abilities and teaching them all equally well. Differentiation must be a cold fact that you can try um, or you can fail and you can try again, not a warm dream utopian ideal, romantic illusory whereby a teacher teaches simultaneously to all imaginable levels of intellect for all imagined manners of achievement. In refusing to follow a rent, we refuse to see the problem. The loss of a sense of duty. Um we lose a sense of our duty to solve this problem perpetually. In refusing to follow Locke, we double down on reward, reward or incentives, at the exclusion of punishment or disincentives. And by being too selective in what is enforced or reinforced, we miss every chance. So for Reef, he encouraged this popular concept for all interdicts. And this reaches a fever pitch that burns up all educative potential, including the potential to civilize and acculturate young people. So if we think that we have to Sometimes this is always phrased as being you know positive, that we're not going to um, disincentivize or have any kinds of punishment. instead we just want incentives and rewards. and by, cutting ourselves off from one half of what is known to motivate human beings and perhaps all living beings that we are, that we're, let's just keep with reward and punishment. I know punishment obviously has a very negative connotation, uh, but we can think of it more broadly just as, you know, the opposite motivator compared to reward. If we cut off the possibility of punishment, and, and this relates to the idea of failure, of failing that you could fail, you could have to repeat a course or a grade, or um, or you know even just having to redo a, a task and assignment. If we lose that punishment, we not only lose punishment; it doesn't only just leave us re- with reward. It also weakens reward itself. That without disincentives, you're. By, by banking only on the success of your incentives, you're also weakening the force and power of incentives as well. So I'm going to use, continuing to talk about TVSC, teacher versus student-centered education, as, as dueling pedagogies. We can think of teacher-centered, as I mentioned, to, to inherit um that there's an inheritance implicit in teacher-centered education and the possibility of failure that this is more akin to what Neil Postman would call thermostatic, which just means to being reactive and responsive to the conditions you can think of a thermostat if you know if it's too hot outside, you can change it to being cold if it's too cold, you can change it to be hot that it compensates for the excesses and deficiencies of the world outside of the classroom. Whereas student-centered, with its notion of encumbrance, not inheritance, and that it precludes failure, that this is more therapeutic compared to thermostatic. So therapeutic education, that there's no presiding authority that can be found. There's only this monolithic. I think, my opinion. And it sets up this that the the patient is the student. The student is the patient. We have this um, this combination. So this the analyst or the patient student. Eventually, meets reality only to crumble. Still exalting oneself as the only authority. The I think run amok with no way to correct course. Height and others see this problem clearly, but none as clear as Reef. So we have chaos and war, no recourse to stable resolution. We indulge amateur wrongness, we encourage it. So we get university students refusing to hear a scholar, charismatics with a therapeutic inheritance. disinheritance, rejecting and disputing professionals, serving up culture. Forget what you think. Jettison opinion, unless you can situate it. Scholars think of what Bertrand Russell thought of Nietzsche. That's more productive than just what you think. What did somebody else think about what somebody else thought? It removes the self, the I think, the my opinion, to a large degree, Step further from what you think, not further into it. Seek to understand rather than to be understood. So therapeutic education is is seeking to express and to be understood. The endless expressional quest. Whereas TC is much more in line with this notion of scholarship, of, of seeking to understand. If all failure in school entails the failure of the teacher, we cannot call this student-centered. This obsession of and for teachers necessarily relegates students to the periphery. If students are at the periphery, um, if they have very little at stake, if they can't really fail, then they also can't really succeed. Because we know that if all failure falls at the teacher's foot, so does every success. We cannot know if this or that student succeeded through the sheer will of a burning-out teacher. So there's some comments here by Richard Royal I wanted to include from, from an article. In many institutions, it is the students who now educate the universities in what grades they will tolerate or how much work they are willing to do. A lack of courage, a failure to stand by the long-standing hallmarks of good academic work. There is a conspiracy of silence among academics. If standards had actually been upheld, vast swaths of people currently going to university would fail. So, in this therapeuticized environment, that there's no risk. And it also means that it limits the experience of success, that the process becomes hollow, and it saps joy from it, that there's no adventure and there's no mystery involved anymore. So this is the paradox of education being obsessed with its own relevance and acting on the basis of that and thus becoming irrelevant, making itself more irrelevant the more it tries to be relevant. Um, this is also referred to as hyper intention, right? When you're trying too hard for something, you don't get it, right? It's kind of a silly example, but if you say, you know, I'm going to meet a, uh, I'm going to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend, um, you know, this week or this month, or I'm going to, you know, get married this year or next year, um, that you'll find that the effort as much as we, you know, rightfully associate effort with, Uh, the success of an outcome there are other cases where it's this is not the case that the effort um has a a debilitating effect right it's in, in hyper intention so i mentioned this that the teacher centered is more thermostatic it's not therapeutic okay this notion of changing temperatures but really um you know, a, a good example of this is, you know, for example, how how technological should schooling be? Well, um, I, you can say it, it depends upon how technological their lives outside of school are, right? What's the the, the prevalence or the temperature? Um, how high is their You know, tech usage. So, for example, in very, let's just say in, in low income places where they don't have a lot of access to technology, you know, not every kid, you know, owns their own laptop, then school should be quite technological. Yet in a highly technological culture, um, you know, that's always, you know, computing and, you know, using phones and then education should be, you know, probably more, traditional book-based, uh, you know, pen and pencil um, and paper. So thermostatic education actually requires a very self-assured culture that welcomes and invites a challenge to it, that it knows that it, in some ways, it, it has a, a balancing effect, right, just as a thermostat does, in a sense. Instead, Education seems more and more saturated by the dominant biases. So, if you have a very, uh, if you have a, a society that's obsessed with politics, then school should be very apolitical. Or just just the opposite. In a culture where there's no interest whatsoever in politics, then it might be more, um, it might be more appropriate to try to introduce more more ideas to kind of get some level of interest. Attitudes that demonize and seek to eradicate any challenge or opposition. Wider social campaigns invade schools. That there's a, you know, there's a political thrust to make the most kind of popular political movements that, you know, activists. That they want their, they don't want any separation between what's going on outside of school and what's going on inside of school. This is actually the kind of the perverse side, the anti-thermostatic notion about being, you know, culturally relevant and responsive. To make schools as much as possible a mirror, think of the kind of a thought-terminating cliche that representation matters. Rather than a notion that a, you know, school is kind of a world apart, that it gives a different kind of experience, um, rather than having to closely mimic the external realities it should be a kind of an oasis, um, so to speak. And school problems feed back into social problems. The notion that our current society would support a school program that was skeptical of dominant bias, rather than in lockstep, arm and arm, marching toward the eradication of some great enemy so certainly you know in the in the broader society in the media and in politics there's at times a very clear sense of you know good and bad and right and wrong and education should be a world apart from this it should be removed and this brings back this idea of temperature that's best articulated by Oakshot. says you know um Schooling. I mean, he used the example of university, but I think it it, it applies. Um, you know, this is the first time where you get to, to set aside the hot allegiances, right? Um, of, a, of a world kind of obsessed with, you know, whose side are you on and where do you stand? That you can have a a, a temporary or even a momentary relief from this constant pressure to kind of you know have some kind of allegiance right especially this hot allegiance so here he actually uses hot and cold in the the cold war sense of a hot war versus a cold war and that you get to just lower the temperature and you get to step outside of this tribal kind of obsessed reality setting aside hot allegiances Okay, so that's just a brief introduction. Of course, I'm I'm talking about Philip Reef, and I'm gonna be just giving some notes from um, uh, a medium length, I'd say, um, article written by James Poulos. Okay, and then I'll kind of come back and and tie some of these these ideas back to, you know, where we are right now, and then just kind of get into some of uh, Reef's actual writing, so I'm going to be focusing on fellow teachers. Okay, so from Pulos. Reef's central preoccupation, the collapse of the social order maintained by Western culture, is the crisis of our time, and a community of resurgence, first in his insight, may yet save us from the interminable, vulgar banality of what our psychotherapeutic civilization has become. Among this growing community, one finds two types of feeling thinkers. This is a term from brief, the, the feeling intellect is a kind of ideal. Feeling thinkers, religious and academic. Presently, the church and the ivory tower continue a rot from within and from the top that no longer surprises many traditionalists, but disgusts and discourages them all. But some theologians and sociologists, aware that culture retains the power to speak with authority toward an adherence to moral order, work to reconquer the terrain that has been lost to the relativist nihilism of the age. Theology and sociology... Inherently, conservative disciplines overlap where conservatism faces a fundamental question of how to best live in the present world. In a society where genuine community seems withered and perverted, and where the wisdom and habit of the traditional culture is often repudiated by popular publicity, is the moral dissident to fight or flee. Put more specifically, is it our duty to struggle to engage a culture that has soured to our taste? Or are we better off abandoning, in Reef's term, the anti culture that surrounds us? Positive communities, explains Reef, are characterized by their guarantee of some kind of salvation of self, with salvation meaning. an experience experience which transforms all personal relations by subordinating them to agreed communal purposes. Negative communities, by contrast, almost automatically by a self-sustaining technology, do not offer a type of collective salvation. Instead, they inform and permit always-changing lifestyles. Allegiances that seem like communities are fleeting, grounded only in whim, no more or less enduring than the desires that call them into being. The analytic attitude of Freud, Reef writes, developed precisely in response to the need of the Western individual, in the Tocquevillian definition, for a therapy that would not depend on a positive community. At its best, analytic therapy creates negative communities." Freud, he concludes, taught lessons which Americans, prepared by their own national experience, learn easily, survive, resign yourself to living within your moral means, suffer no gratuitous failures in a futile search for ethical heights that no longer exist, if they ever did. That quintessential American questing for new community forged from individual striving provided an all too fertile soil for the growth of negative communities having worked toward an answer for years ken myers wishes he'd had the benefit in seminary of assigned passages from brief's idea of an anti-culture says myers his observation that cultural institutions have been mechanisms of restraint and are now mechanisms of release, are key to understanding the consequences of modernity. How deeply people have absorbed many of the root causes of our cultural disorders without even being aware of it. Repentance, Myers asserts, is deeply countercultural. The greatest challenge is to get people to move in the reconciliation of the soul, to an idea of the culture that surrounds them as a legacy of implied obligations, rather than as a series of fashion statements fashioned into commodities. There is enough in Reef's whole corpus to educate a generation on the transformation of culture into an anti-creed of acted-out fashions fortunately reef is clear as crystal on this point to speak of a moral culture he writes in one of the many aphorisms would be redundant culture is a received inheritance of moral precepts reflected in the doings and not doings that make up a social order in the present anti-culture however the doings hold all the trumps and all the sources of restraint, guilt foremost among them, are junked as oppressions, or perhaps junked as repressions. This is by any standard a perversion and exaggeration of Freud. Reef explained Freud's analytical attitude as a doctrine developed for the private wants of private men that shifts with the individual in Freud's day and for some time after an anti-doctrine was enough to help individuals hedge privately against the demands of a culture that no longer that could no longer convince we are left with the irreducible question of how to live myers understands in his own words that reef wasn't advocating any remedial program but he remains certain that damage control is a good Christian vocation. Imber's sociological approach sees the problem this way. In late Western culture, it is the elites who play with fire. Reef always said that we teachers were obliged to address the fires, but not be burned by them. And this may lead to a way of understanding theology, sociology. We now live in the age of spontaneous desires, strong as ever, stoked and stroked by an emotional and identity commodities market. Reef's exposition of the intended triumph of the therapeutic charts a course that never happened. With the decline of a civilization of authority, the therapeutic requirement shifted toward an action which would take place first within the circle of personal relations. At this first level of private re-education had been successfully negotiated. The public life could then be altered. A new kind of community could be constructed, one that did not generate conscience and internal control, but desire and the safe play of impulse. Too immature from the get-go, too weak for Freud's ascetic medicine, the children of the West found themselves unable to do therapy successfully in private. Personal relations by the 1970s and 80s became publicized on a massive scale. Public re-education happened before private re-education cohered, and the resultant crisis in the cultural condition of the public life became a central question of social order. Culture, morals, became political. And in the headlong retreat of judgment that has been, once again, forced upon standards of private behavior by public policy, quantity has become quality. The answer to all questions of what for, Rafe declares, is more. More. Western culture is changing already into a symbol system unprecedented in its plasticity and absorptive capacity. Nothing much can oppose it really, and it welcomes all contradiction, for, in a sense, it stands for nothing. Reef attempts to summarize the nature of those changes which have all but destroyed our inherited culture without having produced another to take its place. Only a handful of pages in, he warns the reader of his object with a sentence that causes the heart of an individual cut off from real community against his own wishes to leap. These preliminary studies in the psychohistorical process are not aimed primarily at fellow theorists interested in the problem but at those troubled readers in whose minds and hearts one culture is dying while no other gains enough power to be born. That mission, to rediscover together the lessons taught by disgust as well as desire and hope beyond despair, is the calling of our time for feeling intellects the return to Reef's vital legacy ushered onward. Still searching for answers that can bear the weight of the questions at the heart of how to live, the reappearance of Philip Reef's beacon of understanding is like the beam of a lighthouse coming into view on dark and choppy seas. Our going forward toward that light, and all true lights, is, in fact, a going back, a reconquest of culture and community for the wisdom of life to which, in its resolute hope, some innocence may return again. Okay, so that's the um, excellent writing of James Poulos, um, and, and quoting a number of individuals, um, namely, brief but also Myers, as well as Imber. Okay, so just a few more notes here uh, before I switch to something a little bit more, well, philosophical and topical. Interestingly, the mature generation has for the first time declared that civilization is bad and is reluctant to transmit it. And the subtext in the Hannah Arendtian sense, we don't love the young enough to invite them into and to renew the world. Or you might say our world, that we're not inviting them to it insofar as we don't transmit it and they don't inherit it. And the overt sense has to deal with what, woke is or wokeness Um, so we are woke we see only the dark side of the transmittable and we refuse to transmit it therefore they refuse to receive culture and civilization so they become uncultured, uncivilized people without history barbaric anxious, depressed And the non-transmission is debilitating. They have nothing to start from or to build from. And, on top of that, they also have to remake and fix the world. Education and therapy are each monumental testaments to civilization and culture. A future society that offers unlimited free education and unlimited free therapy to every citizen intuitively intuitively feels utopian-esque, but um, perhaps is a meaningful and worthwhile aspiration. But just as it would be inappropriate for an analyst to assign projects and tests that the analyst and could fail as a matter of objective performance so is it inappropriate for education to be too therapeutic. And so the extricative pulling apart or cleaving of therapy from education is here seen as a genuinely progressive or productive direction for education. Height and others have indicated that while education, including parenting or child rearing practices, is all part of education, um, whereas schooling is distinct from parenting, has become too therapeutic. It also ironically violates principles of CBT. This insight harkens back to brief, and is best articulated by Hayes and Ecclestone that the therapy concept as it exists in the cultural imagination is something too akin to reckless permissiveness, to doing whatever feels good. So first, there's a distinction that has to be made between therapy and hedonism, and a secondary distinction between hedonism and education, and the, the failures to make these distinctions. The triumph of these pseudo-therapeutic ideals and culture, their permeating permutations, has radically changed education, but not for the better. Recall that education and therapy are recognized as worthwhile. Um, this isn't anti-education, nor is it anti-therapy. But the notion that we can somehow impose upon the extant state institution the apparatus of education a way to therapeutize young people ought to offend the principled agents of both of these two distinct fields so teachers should object to you know having these added therapeutic obligations and therapists should object to non-therapists doing amateur therapy but there are two few uh, people of conscience to vote against this terrible merger so let me come to let me come back to um, this Nietzsche quote Uh, the soothsayer the wise men of every age say of life it is no good Quote, concerning life, the wisest men of all ages have judged alike, it is no good. Always and everywhere one has heard the same sound from their mouths, a sound full of doubt, full of melancholy, full of weariness of life, full of resistance to life. All we need to do is replace life with the word the world um, or status quo to recognize education in these lines, namely critical pedagogy. This unleashed the instinctual great refusal in saying no to or negating that which is. And after that, the great reset in tandem. But there's a very successful kind of blackmail game going on here about, well, should we transmit the past for inheritance or not? And, uh, I want to just break down some of this logic here and then tie it back to brief again. Don't you see how it is no good? Are you blind? So this is how the the critical pedagogue kind of um, twists the arm of the rest of culture. That why would we want to transmit? Why would we want any of this you know, so-called great past to be uh, transmitted and inherited. Every generation is called at once towards renewal and to revolt. Are we going to renew the culture or are we going to revolt? The historical and cultural factors are many in seeing which prevails. So the notion is that the status quo is a pejorative. It's indefensible, right? Just the phrase, the status quo. Uh, It almost implies its own badness, its own need for some kind of revolt, rather than renewal. So, it's perhaps a trite cliché, but the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he doesn't exist. Maybe so. But, from devils to demagogues, the greatest trick the clever ever played was convincing us their wisdom exists. That definition amounts to accepting Nietzsche's claim that human beings should be viewed for epistemological purposes as what Nietzsche called clever animals. Beliefs are to be judged solely by whether they get believers. How quickly a clever animal becomes a liar. Liars are those who use the community's agreed-upon words in ways that violate the community's designations as to how those words are to be used. So, assuming that we're familiar with Mott and Bailey, Mott, we will fix education, Bailey, by fixing the world first, through the theft of education, and then all shall be healed. Yes, that Mott They just want to save education to then save the whole world. This is the Savior's saving. As he who heals and saves is also he who shall be praised. In bastardizing Jeremiah 17, 14, they compel this prayer from our swelling lips. Heal me, neo-warlord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise then I will be completely well and perfectly safe. Confidence is a feeling, and charisma is a mechanism. It's how confidence asserts itself in a clever form. So, in one of my favorite lesser-known books um, that speak to this phenomenon uh, by Raman, there's a, from pages 3 to 6, this problem stares out screaming, and it's found in the way he traces back to T.S. Eliot in the poem The Rock. Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? By dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. So that's the, again, from T.S. Eliot's The Rock. Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And as the lines go, they constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. So, Roman is interested in a critique of psychology, which I'd like to shift towards education. We have a Peter Pan complex. We're all victims of historical amnesia, reflecting mirrors, reflecting the societal trends rather than remaining beacons, illuminating our intellectual heritage. Education has a long past, but only a very short history. Labeling anything the past, and thus ignoring it, has sapped the vitality of education. Education's perpetual youth in historical amnesia. Education has a long and rich history, but suffers from a very short memory. So he turns here from Eliot to Reef. Released from all authoritative past, we progress towards barbarism, not away from it. Barbarians are people without historical memory. And then, uh, quoting Woodring, All the dark ages that blot the pages of the history of our own and other civilizations began when the older generations failed to transmit the cultural heritage to the young. Malevolence. To deny the young their rightful inheritance. Not even to hoard it, but just to see it wither and die. And instead of declaring bankruptcy education continued printing worthless counterfeits and stayed on the inflationary spiral. Recovery from such amnesia requires reconnection both with the spirit of the Socratic mission as recovery from bankruptcy necessitates the appropriation of the intellectual and literary wealth generated over the last two and a half millennia. It is Important to reclaim this knowledge that we have lost in the buzz of information. And then also to reclaim the wisdom. Teachers in any discipline have a prime obligation to transmit to the young the whole intellectual, literary, cultural heritage that informs the discipline. And returns again to brief... We teachers must produce, first in ourselves, those protections of older wisdom which may help stave off arrogant stupidities, parading as originality, modernization, revolution, and, of course, values. Respect for what is long known is not charismatic. Don't ask what's wrong with kids today. Responsible stewards know there is but one answer. They have no one to look up to, because we've shown them nothing worth looking upon. Okay, so slightly more uh, political, that when a society's own institutions, when the institutions belonging to that society become hostile to it, well it, it it seems to function in a kind of pincer move. This has been described as uh, you know being from from both top and bottom so at the macro level um, you know this is just an example at the macro level, the nation is bad due to say its racist history okay, or colonial oppression and at the micro level, the individual is bad due to let's say privilege so national and personal identity. Both must change, radically reimagined and transformed, is the, as it often goes. This is not the little c plural changes of improvement, refinement, reform, etc. It's the broad, sweeping, and comparatively sexy title change. It's all too easy to fall out of love with the status quo, or with the current order. Many people agreed that, well, love of God and country and family is outmoded. We can do better than these old ideas. We can do better than patriotism. We can be global citizens. We can have a new morality based in science or humanity. Big C singular change is ambitious, and so it projects confidence. It says, we can do better than these old ideas. And confidence is one of the key words here. I've talked a little bit about this crisis of confidence. Uh, the crisis of confidence seems to belong to the people who might defend culture, civilization, um, or the uh, the status quo. Um, whereas those attacking it um, seem to have overflowing, abundant confidence. And... This does not bode well for those who don't want to see society, um, you know, decline, decay and fall. And so it's a, a trying to address the problem, or working towards a solution that, that considers the importance of confidence, I suppose, is being advocated here. The first step to renovate is to get out the sledgehammer. You hated that old bathroom anyway, right? But your new items are not yet ready, for whatever reason. So now, in the post-forking and country, post-modernity, it is only assumed that having shaken off the rust of ill tradition, the new world will be bright and new. Only it isn't. Change. Change requires a countervailing or defending confidence. When this erodes, all bets are off. The valent or attacking confidence ascends. Countervailing confidence to defend the status quo from change is a hard case to make. And the Mont and Bailey is its Achilles heel. So, imagine that this uh, It's an an AB dialogue, just for demonstration's sake. We need to get rid of everything and start over. This is the Bailey. What? No. It's, It's easy to reject this position. Get rid of everything and start over? No. So, you think everything's fine, and we can't do any better, and we shouldn't try? This is the Mott position. So you think everything's fine and we can't do any better and shouldn't try? Well, no. So you agree. We need to get rid of everything and start over. Many people have seen enough of a sample size to sense that this new emergent status quo is in no way preferable to the old one. Even people like me. Who you would not consider to be uh, very, you know, or just particularly religious or patriotic are feeling it now. This is why we're at an inflection point, a time of significant change in a situation or a turning point. Whatever this new thing is, this new world order, new woke order, we are confident it is not good at all, and so we're rediscovering the countervailing or defending confidence believing it is not too late. Yes, they're going to say you're nostalgic over losing your cherished, again, for example, um, white supremacist patriarchy, that you're just clinging to this because it's good for you. Um, It's a way of accusing you of selfishness. But you also sense the desperation in that line of attack. Um, that even in modest disagreements that are made in good faith um, you know that the the opposite party, the interlocutor will just think of the worst thing to call you um, you know, the most damning historical comparison, and that it isn't really confident it's vengeful and malevolent the defending confidence senses it will be ousted, as the new organism will force it out of its shell and assume its place, and then be cast out to start again. It knows, but struggles to say what it knows. Why don't you go and create your own society in which to conduct your utopian experiment? Because that is more just than experimenting on us. By analogy, The barbarians don't know how to build walls and city gates, and institutions for that matter. They want to ransack yours. They want to come in and convert, enslave, or push you out into the wastes. So this all relates to cultural confidence, as well as transmission, renewal, versus this unconfident decline, decay, and fall. As soon as that confidence, one example of confidence, could be something like national pride, slips into national shame. This is interesting. Just thinking of uh, you know recent events, that national pride has become national shame, and that pride perhaps was a kind of a was floating and up for grabs, and that pride has kind of been just almost as if the word, if not the idea itself, has become captured and redeployed. Um, So, for example, this national pride into national shame example is um, partly accomplished by a fixation on national tragedies, not national triumphs, which becomes de rigueur in education. And the message of change, anti-status quo, becomes more seductive, right? The more we fixate on national tragedies and the more national pride slips into national shame, the more uh, anti-status quo change message resonates. Um, The status quo or the existing order or liberal democracy. Then, to cease to transmit, to cease to renew, then decline becomes decay. But you can see the logic here that, why would we transmit this, this legacy of oppression? Right, it, it no longer becomes an intellectual inheritance. It just becomes, well, it no longer becomes something good to be passed on. It becomes something bad that you're sparing the young people by not passing on this inheritance, because it's redefined not as an inheritance at all, but as an in- encumbrance. Anyway, change is precisely the right word because it is not necessarily an improvement. It's just change. But this comes back to confidence and weakness, right? That they sense weakness, right? That you're not strong enough. You're not willing to defend what is. Um, And so this weakness is sniffed out, right? Like jackals or hyenas, when they talk about being, you know, anti-status quo, they're anti-you and me, any kind of defender of culture or civilization they want to make changes and then oversee these changes and so you can see it's a power grab right calling everything something until you control it national pride or confidence for example it insists on a stable core identity this is just one source of gratitude or appreciation and but they who say it is no good thinking back to the Nietzsche quote thrive on anyone who already feels guilt, who wants to confess or atone for their sins. They're just the first course. The absence of confidence or pride or gratitude or appreciation. I'll talk about these terms more. So the distinction I'll make between gratitude and appreciation first is that one is felt and one is thought. That you feel gratitude. It's described as the feeling of thankfulness, it's more emotional for something or someone. Uh, whereas you think appreciation in recognizing the good more intellectually, uh, recognizing the good qualities of someone or something. So someone who's, let's say, clinically depressed may yet recognize the good in life, but not feel thankful for it. Right? That there, there can be an intellectual but not an emotional appreciation. Um, that you can you know you can think you know something is good, but just not feel it, so certainly you can be great, you can be appreciative but ungrateful. you cannot be thankful without seeing the good seeing some good in something so I mentioned this as the first course that the perhaps the most vulnerable to some kind of a you know new Western cultural revolution that some people you know, believe is afoot. So then having bolstered the ranks with arguably the, mo- the, the, the easiest people to convert or um, recruit, having bolstered their ranks, they move on to the second course. This is the inculcation and cultivation of more guilt to undermine the confidence. So in appreciation, we recognize that we are good, even if you don't feel gratitude, you should. So in this sense, people who are guilty or lacking in confidence can easily become, well, what some people refer to do as a, as a kind of a cult or a mind virus, uh, the, the, the parasitic nature of wokeness. The idea here is that we not only need to be confident, but we need to teach or preach or coach a kind of confidence, uh, a kind of a, a baseline belief that there's something good about culture and civilization. And the more we fail to do that, um, the, the easier it is to, well, that young people become more disillusioned. They'll, they'll have no inclination to try to defend it. Um, and the less we defend it, the more vigorous the assault will be upon culture anyway appreciation and gratitude i'd say the the best position is to have both is that you can that you can recognize objects of you know things to be thankful for um that there can be an intellectual appreciation and also an emotional gratitude and each one can lead to the other right that we can coach these feelings of gratitude and we can teach these thoughts of appreciation and each one can lead to the other. It's easy for gratitude to slip, and so it must be reinforced in a healthy culture to recognize the good and give thanks. This is why national pride, however hokey or outmoded it may sound, is a bulwark against the barbarians. National pride says, no, we have something good and it is worth defending. And based on individual dignity that says, yes, I am something good. I am worth defending. So thinking of these two levels, the, 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 the collective and the individual, the critique that, that is um, gripping Western culture right now is at the individual level, there's nothing but repression. Everyone is repressed. That there are no little f freedoms, plural. Uh, for example, to be or to express yourself, right? So you're oppressed at the individual level, and of course you're oppressed at the collective level. Um, that everything is oppressive, and there's no capital f freedom, singular, under the state or the law. I'll I'll come back to these two levels. Pride here is tied to confidence. The decline of cultural confidence is self-same to the decline of the culture itself. Right? This lack of confidence very easily leads to this idea of, well, you know, we have nothing worth defending, so why would, we bo- why would we bother? Compared to or versus the confidence of the critique, the confidence of the problematization, The seemingly endless or boundless energy of this kind of uh, anti Western culture, anti Western civilization critique. Otherwise, lack of thanks can become hijacked into unappreciation. You're unthankful because the world, life, it is no good. You're supposed to feel ingratitude because you recognize there's nothing to appreciate. So we need to bring the good into the world before you can recognize it. Then give thanks to us after the revolution. So that's pre-revolutionary critical consciousness. We need a, in order to defend against this, we need a robust or confident superstructure of appreciation, good recognition, recognizing the good of what is of what we already have. then, in the superstructure supports a base. Various structures of gratitude, thanksgiving, feeling thankful for said good, or for the goodness that is. Thanks is the most quotidian manifestation of this whole phenomenon, um, including appreciation and gratitude. Revolutionaries first seize upon extant ingratitude, before they can assault appreciation. So imagine, um, this is a bad place full of bad people who did bad things, let's say colonial history, and that this is ongoing oppression. Life, the world, it is no good. You cannot imagine the power of this idea it has tremendous appeal especially for young people uh, to critique and to problematize i mean the natural will that young people have to assert themselves against authority but not just in a trite teenage rebellious sense but in this kind of evolutionary biological sense to assert their independence from largely from their parents who are kind of have this symbolic representation of the status quo So this notion that life and the world are no good are tremendously powerful ideas. And what happens is to replace thanks with disappointment of of what, what exists. And to replace appreciation with resentment, bitter indignation at the existence of unfairness. I mean, on the one hand, life's not fair is a statement of fact. And on the other, it's a problem to be solved, as if it could, if we dream hard enough. It's an incredible opportunity for the assertion of confidence, right? If we do these things, uh, that we can eliminate all unfairness, injustice, et cetera, right? The incredible confidence of people who seem to actually believe that they have the answer to create utopia, to create paradise, right? Heaven on earth. Once enough disappointment foments into sufficient resentment, the revolution is underway. Likely you've picked up on the religious connotation of thanks or giving thanks. And yes, this is also known as prayer, a daily practice whereby one commits oneself to practicing gratitude toward appreciation. This is one way religion supports a confident culture, and perhaps also why it is argued, by some, to be a pillar of civilization. You look and see that it is good, to paraphrase Genesis. First, this quotidian gratitude wanes. Then it can be replaced with daily ingratitude. Look and see It is no good. See how bad it is. And if you won't see how bad, the fault is in you. Gratitude can be weaponized against you, while ingratitude is admired vis-a-vis critical consciousness. That it's uh, this kind of rejection, this ingratitude, is a kind of rite of passage, but it's easy for politically thirsty and ambitious tendencies to piggyback upon this kind of youthful rite of passage, you know, uh, resentment, rebellion, asserting independence. In the Gnostic Church of Anti-Racism, there is a daily rite of atonement for the sin of racism. Characterized not by thanks or gratitude towards appreciation, but by unthankful ingratitude towards resentment. There's no good reason to give thanks. So no good person ought to give thanks. Only the good people, the truly good people, can feel the bitterness and the righteous indignation at the existence of unfairness. Basically, it devolves fairly quickly into anyone who isn't trying to destroy this society like me, cannot be a good person because they're not doing anything about the unfairness. Gnostic Marxists don't accept that unfairness, inequality, or inequity um, are a fact of life or facticity. It's only a feature of existence because of our own moral failings. Well, let me edit that. This unfairness, it's only a feature of existence because of your moral failings, right? So there's this finger pointing that's central to this process. Rather, unfairness, inequality, or inequity exist because the bad people of the bad status quo, again, that's you and me and everyone who isn't like them, want it. The world is bad because you want it to be bad, because you like it this way, you love it, and you uphold it. Because you're a kind of a perverse beneficiary of the bad things in the world. It's almost an answer to this, you know, this kind of elementary ethical question of why do bad things happen to good people? Well, because there are bad people that are doing it to them. They are going to create a utopia paradise on earth or imminentize the eschaton predicated on disappointment rather than thanks and resentment over appreciation, labeled and marketed as critical consciousness. And anyone who has, a, as we might say, a predisposition to these feelings of disappointment and resentment can very easily be co-opted and, uh, well, as has also been suggested in the cult sense of the term, grooming, grooming any, anyone who's disappointed or resentment. Into this so called critical consciousness. Okay, so um, another kind of example. Um, For the woke, the problem of advantage is not solved by service to your fellow man it is recast as privilege and the irony is it's even more guilt repentance based or it's as guilt repentant as the church once was things tend to mellow out or cool over time so the brand new woke church is white hot in so far as it is enraged seemingly all the time there's no promise of salvation or redemption at all per se um just this kind of... only insofar as it's promised in the kind of post-revolutionary condition. It seizes upon psychological instability. Its vision is actually pro-instability or pro-unstable because the revolution begets a new revolution into perpetuity and it breeds even more psychological instability. Whereas civilization is a delicate balance cultivated over thousands of years oh, it is no good. Going back to the Nietzsche line. So, you lay life on a table and cut out all the tumors of injustice. It's a line from the film Dr. Zhivago. I don't know if it's exactly a line from the novel by Pasternak. You lay life on a table and cut out all the tumors of injustice. And you cut forever a little more until you need a new cadaver. Rinse and repeat. A couple other notes here. Interestingly, the recent James Lindsay homily is the secular expression of that spirit. Use your strength to serve others. Use your advantages charitably. Um, Your strengths or your advantages that... um, you know, your privileges are basically good, so use them well. In the kind of woke theology, any advantage or strength is privilege that you've implicitly stolen from someone, right? Some invisible they. Uh, strengths, advantages. If privileges are basically bad, then don't use them. Check them or lose them somehow. Give them away, perhaps. But it doesn't make sense, of course. It's a kind of psychoterror. The best things about you are bad. The best things about you should cause you a sense of guilt or shame um, rather than somehow being harnessed to do something good for somebody else. Of course, the best things about you are great, and the bad things about you are awful. So this is a problem of leveling down. Um this is not really a new idea, but um, the ultimate reason why we have a you know, our most thriving societies are predicated upon uh, the individual in the west is that when ultimately when there 's too much of an effort to make everyone equal, it levels everyone down, and ultimately what what we what we would all like to do is to level everyone up. So that's part of the problem with the telos of equity is that it doesn't, uh, level everyone up into some kind of greater equality and community and citizenship. So going back to these, these different levels, um, Think of the sophisticated balance in this simple example of something like uh, national pride, but also a humble faith. That pride and humility, they're checked, that they check themselves, right? And strange enough, sure, pride is a sin, but it can also be good. Um, You know, maybe it's a paradoxical somehow. Um, But even deeper than that. Is you know having pride and humility in the sense of national pride and humble faith, um, you know a willingness to defend the collective and also um, to defend the, the the dignity of the individual. That the nation and the church historically also have at times kind of checked one another. So in terms of check and balance, is the twin pillars. So obviously the worst outcome of all is that in this, well, that the utopia the revolution promises is just a dystopia. That is, while it will be true, technically, that no one will have any more than anyone. That perfect equality will be achieved when everyone has nothing or everyone's dead. That's obviously leveling down. Or no, it's just leveling Now, how do you argue with the revolution, you might say? If the culture of civilization is so irredeemably bad, then why do you want to take it over so badly? Precisely because they do recognize the incredible value of human achievement implicitly. They lust after a healthy, productive culture which they cannot create. No one wants to take over something that has no value. Everyone wants something invaluable. They want our infrastructure for their experiment. They mean to dabble in utopia in our cities and schools. They want to dip their toes in the oasis they see so clearly in what they see as the desert of our evil western civilization. Again, the defending confidence senses it will be ousted, as the new organism will force out of its shell and assume its place, and then to be cast out to start again. As stated. Um, again, I mentioned this briefly, but the terminology used by GadSAT, an infection or a parasite cannot be or grow its own host. It needs an otherwise healthy body or body politic to corrupt. A parasite qua infectious idea wants nothing more than to convince you that it is the cure and that you should want it to spread because the host, that's you, and uh, all you are and have, is not worth saving. But what they really want is to have it all for themselves. In this sense, it seems like a very... Simple manipulation. Simple, almost naive, right? That if I desperately want something that you have, I can convince you that it's not really valuable, right? I can trick you to abandoning it, right? Um, and then I can take it for myself because I, I covet it so much, right? It's like if I can just, you know, neg your, your culture, your civilization, um, you'll just you'll be less inclined to defend it, um, to to hold on to it. So the modern or even postmodern condition in the West can be described as a crisis of confidence. Confident teachers know how kids should behave and what they ought to know. So as an example, in my B.Ed., we had a large assembly of all the student teachers Back on campus, after a short rotation of being in real classrooms in schools, right at the start of the school year, the profs, not the classroom teachers, but the professors of the program, asked us, following up, how many of your teachers, the the teachers that you were uh, observing or co-teaching with, co-created rules with kids? Not one hand went up. And the prof was clearly deflated by this, right? The prof wanted to, to know, you know, if these classroom teachers were making classroom rules together with the students of the class, because this was evidence that their ideology doesn't have total control over classroom practice, like it does in theory, in their world, in the, you know, in the these departments of education and universities. So, well, for me, this is a kind of a win for uh, teacher-centeredness, TC, and a loss for SC. Okay, why? Because teachers should not start the year by indicating that they don't know the rules of their own classroom. It suggests a crisis of confidence when it is important to project confidence and authority for the sake of stability. You might be thinking, but Dan, the radical, revolutionary, reimagining, transforming, woke Marxist reeducator activists don't like authority and stability because it undermines their agenda. Precisely. Right? The rules of the classroom are not up for negotiation. Marxist theory is predicated on the idea that capitalism is bad, namely, it is unstable or volatile, as well as exploitative and alienating. The biggest problem they face is that it isn't, actually, due to the pesky shackles of reality. I believe that's a Douglas Murray phrasing. But if they can act as saboteurs and make it unstable or volatile, then they can point to the failures. Of capitalism, they've done it in pedagogy, they've done it in curriculum, and their final frontier is classroom practice. And this is a strangely, this is a beacon of hope that um, there's a lot of teachers um, who probably just ignore a lot of this stuff, right? That they probably officially pretend. Um, to be woke teachers, but secretly they aren't. So, thinking of these three phases, systems, for example, culture. Let's say culture is a kind of a system. But in general, systems decline, then decay, then fall. This might even be, you know, a, a, you know biological. Um, so, for me, I'm thinking of it in terms of pedagogy, curriculum, classroom. That critical pedagogy um, is just the decline phase, right? That the level of ideas for all of education. Then critical curriculum is the decay phase, right? It's more um, more aggressive and this is the level of, you know, like moving from critical pedagogy of say, you know, university ed de- departments to curriculum. This is the level of, you know, administration, uh, superintendents and principals, and then the critical classroom is the fall, the final phase. And so we have to fight back in inverse order, right? First, um, this this kind of um, battle that's going on right now, um, in its figurative sense. The battle for the classroom against the woke infantry. And then after that will be the battle for the curriculum against the woke officers, And then, the battle for pedagogy against the woke generals. So, to repel an invasion, first, I mean, you don't fall, and then you have to stop the decay, and then you have to even reverse the decline. Ultimately, reversing the decline is really just having better ideas. Kind of a renewal. Okay, as I noted above, unstable or volatile as well as exploitative and alienating. Um, this is the yeah, the kind of a straw man of capitalism itself. Um, I think I've already covered this. Um, let me jump to the Point of optimism, and there's a brief mention of Jordan Peterson. I think I've, I think I've just a few pages left here. So, the reason to be optimistic is the fact that we're, the most optimistic take is that we're still only at the stage of decline, that we still haven't yet really reached the stage of decay, and that this is a testament to the foundations of our culture and the wider civilization it participates in. We are not yet really experiencing decay. And we do not wish to. I think people in education would argue, oh, yes, we are, Dan. We're past the decline stage. We're at the decay stage. But that's just because that we're in education, which is probably the most decayed institution, the most affected institution, whereas there's probably a lot more health in other institutions. And so in a an in overall sense, um, decline is probably still a better descriptor than decay. Um, but the point is, despite the incredible success of relentless attacks, our walls are still standing. You may argue, again, some institutions are decayed. But overall, considering we've barely made a collective effort to defend the culture of civilization, there's hope, and not a delusional hope. We have to say, no. No. We have an infinite richness of endless importance to transmit in education. Any reluctance to transmit that, any inkling to deny the next generation their cultural and intellectual inheritance is suicidal, the suicide that seals up its own tomb. Wherever this confidence falters, the jackals and hyenas of resentful ill-intent stalk then nip, soft targets, before they pounce. This is why Jordan Peterson is such an interesting figure, even if polarizing. One day he was just an ordinary professor, skeptical of some policy or agenda, and they thought they could bully him into silence or compliance. They inadvertently overstepped their position or overplayed their hand. And it makes all the sense in the world that it occurred on their home field, the university. They are confident, because they are here to fulfill the lost promise of Marxian utopia. They're revolutionaries. Everyone else is just a drone, a worker bee, lacking critical consciousness. As for J.B.P., it turns out that he had the potential for world fame and preeminence in the culture war they want, but accidentally unearthed the culture warrior they didn't want say what you want about him. He doesn't lack confidence. He is not full of doubt. He's not an easy target. He knows this culture, as it still stands despite its decline, ought not decay nor fall despite its flaws, because the greedy would-be inheritors waiting in the wings can only replace it with something much, much worse. This is a poor trade, for any civilization to make it's illogical or damn stupid to give up good imperfection in exchange for murderous evil resentful murderous and then genocidal if you take it far enough again thinking of these three stages resentful equals decline murderous equals decay and then genocidal equals fall Face the reality that's coming straight at you without becoming weak and degenerating and becoming resentful and wishing for the destruction of being. Because that's the final hell. The final hell. The destruction of being. can it be too far off from the destruction of children of innocence? So thinking again of confidence which side has more true believers woke true believers would i think be martyrs right true believers are martyrs in the sense of strange as it sounds um you know basically this is still a kind of a hot war sorry it's a cold war rather than a hot war um you know when people talked about national divorces come up i don't really think Civil War maybe has come up in some very small corners, but it's probably still, um, you know, I think it would still, everyone would probably would think this is just hyperbolic. But um, which side has, if we imagine there are, you know, two sides in a kind of a culture war, which side is more people who are more willing to die for their own cause? Again, as a manifestation of confidence. The fundamental cause of the trouble in the modern world today is that the intelligent are full of doubt. Except Bertrand Russell, quote. Okay, so let me splice in here the latter part of the piece of bring back Philip Reif here again. Reif, Reif. So I am intending to focus on uh, Philip Reif here for this. You know, this obviously is the, I think this will be the last um, Philip. Reef Primer before I get into fellow teachers. Okay, so predominantly for me, Reef is the counterfigure to Freire or Freire. Um, but there's an, actually an overlap between Marcuse and Freire, um, and Reef is posited here as their opponents. So let me continue this piece by shifting towards a short article by R.R. Reno about Reef. For Reef, Rebelling it against cultural norms to replace old-fashioned forms of self-discipline is bad. This is the therapeutic liberation over so-called repression. Imagine a world that's totally repressed and it needs therapeutic liberation. Imagine a world that's totally oppressed and you need political, possibly violent, liberation. Economic liberation, maybe, over oppression. And again, therapeutic liberation over repression. We could also say that Reef and Marcuse are the are also polar opposite Freudians. For Reef, so called repression is good. It's the voice that says no to unrestrained libido, recognizable in the thou shalt not style commands, whether formal religious commandment or creedal commandments of conscience. The completely unrestrained Eros, or yes, seeking desires of the individual, are a threat to the body politic. The powerful authoritative voice in you that says no, as a matter of conscience, may indeed be repressive, but it's also the fundamental way we can defend civilization from so-called barbarians, first by defending it from the barbarian-ness within ourselves. So put it another way, thinking of these two levels again, the individual and the collective, or the in, the self and the social, that voice within you is religion, and the voice around you is law and order, right? That you have as your 1st failsafe the you have this voice of conscience, and at the second level, there's, um, well, there are consequences for certain actions. Not merely accepting but respecting the no, right? You don't always have to tolerate some putting up with someone else telling you no all the time. Um, you internalize it, right? This is often the way the superego is described, the internalization of the parental voice. But once you can see and understand why, um, for example, if you think about the you know, Kantian categorical imperative and universalizing maxims that of all the things you want to do, you wouldn't want to be in a world where everybody else was just doing whatever they wanted to do all the time. Okay. The true sustainability problem is that of a culture incapable of no. Civilization fundamentally depends upon to delay, and even to deny gratifying um, pleasure-seeking impulses. Id. So, Reef sees this new man, Marcuse alludes to, as someone who feels that any creeds of what not to do are simply old, dead reminders with no binding authority. Even the social contract is bunk. The new man could be a therapeutic or a charismatic who shatters ordinary limits and remakes our ideals, because The very nature of culture itself, its need for routine, for law, for institutions, destroys the life-giving gift of inspiration. And, put bluntly, selfish, venal men have gained control over the many cultural institutions that socialize us. Just by pointing out Culture controls us, and we don't need to be controlled, and thus unleash Eros. It is a powerful message. Do what you want. And it is the right hand of the so-called charismatics of history. That's an incredibly powerful message to get rid of any controlling authority to do what you want. Especially with the added promise that after we get rid of any kind of power or authority, whether within the self as repression or outside of the self as oppression, that all of these things are not necessary features. They're not facts of life. They're just particularities of, um, I don't know, or, or verisimilitudes that they can, they can be gotten rid of without losing anything else of value. Critical theory, in this sense, is nothing new, but takes many forms. Just call it something destructive, death-giving, repressive, capitalist, or racist, until you control it. Say, any religion, or even culture itself, is only an institution to domesticate or dominate us, to domesticate us like livestock or to dominate us like slaves. And prevents any free expression of creativity or originality. Which we obviously know is not true, but nevertheless, this challenge to the culture of civilization remains. Eros, this charismatic therapeutic Marxism, manifests as the confidence to transgress and remake social norms in its own image. This is exciting, right? especially for young people, until it makes us tremble with fear, as it did for Reef. Paradoxically, barbarism is actually highly sophisticated. It is a sophisticated cutting off of the inhibiting authority of the past. Freedom from any restraint, then fabled utopia. To get rid of anyone or anything that tells you what to do. Will this make heaven on earth, or a living hell? It's an essential question. It's an ancient question that goes back to the Ring of Gyges. What will people do if and when they can do anything? All love each other, or kill each other? The answer depends very much on how we see human nature. If we're born free and everywhere in chains, then... All we have to lose are our chains, from Rousseau to Marx in a flash. But for Reef, we end up with a soulless world, without inner constraints, a cultureless society, dominated or populated by clever, technically sophisticated animals whose lives are dominated by the need for survival, the desire for pleasure, and the dark urge to dominate. A different kind of dark triad. True individuality is not found in unrestrained eros; it's found precisely in restraint. Individuality is deepened and strengthened by an authority deeply installed. That that any kind of restriction upon the self, um, discipline, only leads to greater creativity, greater achievement. The creed by which you live your life makes you human. It doesn't undermine your humanity. Refusing to give commandments, their full and proper form, as an unqualified no, is the actual effect of so-called critical thinking. So, never say no. Say no to nothing and say yes to everything. Using critical thinking pejoratively here may seem unusual. Perhaps so-called critical thinking is better understood as the cleverness game, where anything obviously good could be bad, and anything obviously bad could also be good. The rank critical thinking of relativism constructivism. Is this arguably the deepest meaning and purpose of education today? As re education, indoctrination. Therapeutic culture or education doesn't know the word no. Therapeutic types are unauthority figures. And it's, it's a short leap from an unauthority figure of a therapeutic type to a kind of um, anti authority rebel. The so-called academic therapists, who promise insight without wisdom, without creeds, are better understood as terrorists. They have attacked our inner lives with the neutron bombs of critique. Terrorists or barbarians who critique or attack the West. This is an evil that goes unnoticed. Maybe because we lack confidence or faith in the goodness of our own societies and in our beliefs. This problem they do not share. They are brimming with confidence and a new kind of faith, which we struggle to understand. And they are not tired. Thank you.